Hey, and welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. We are in a series on the book of Revelation where we are seeking what God's word says to us as the church right now. Each week of the series, we will go through large portions of scripture. So if you go to scottshill.org slash revelation, you will be provided a reader's guide to keep you on track with the passages from each week's sermon. We hope this series blesses you as we look forward to the imminent return of Christ. Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsdale Baptist Church. My name is Jeff and I'm one of the pastors here and it is a delight to gather with you today to worship our great God together to study his word and to engage in worship. You are watching us online. We are so grateful that you continue to invite us each and every week into your home. Uh, We wanna encourage you as you have opportunity to gather back with us so we can encourage you face to face. Well, as we look around our world, we recognize one thing, don't we? And that thing is this, it's Christmas time. We look around and we are reminded that Christmas season is upon us with the endless loop of Christmas music, with Christmas cookies and Christmas parties. And we look around this room today and I see that you guys have all brought out your best Christmas attire. It is, it is what you've looked forward to all year to be able to come out and to, to celebrate Christmas. And, and for you students, the one thing that you're thinking about most is Christmas break. You know, that's coming up soon and you're excited about that. And, and for, many, for many kids, this time of year is so filled with anticipation and expectation as they look forward to what happens on December the 25th and they wake up and there's Christmas presents galore. That is unless your presents are out in the Pacific Ocean uh, with the supply chain issues. I mean, really, nobody's immune to that problem today. But for many of us, we look forward to that day with a great sense of joyful anticipation. We look forward to that day. But there are often times in our lives where things aren't so joyful whenever we think of anticipation. They're really quite the opposite. Now, I know none of you in here have ever fallen into this category. This has never been you. You've never heard this, nor have you ever said this. But just imagine with me for a moment a child who has done something that was, that was irreparable, irreplaceable, was just terrible in the home. And you said, or they heard, you just wait until your father gets home. Dreadful anticipation. Now, some of you, I just sent chills up your spine. It flashed you back to your childhood and, and maybe you've checked out for a moment. We sometimes live with dreadful anticipation, maybe sitting for hours in our room waiting until he comes home. There's another reality for us sometimes, especially here on the coast. Starts about June and it runs until November. And that's hurricane season. We hear on the news, there's a storm starting off the coast of Africa. And then the spaghetti model starts showing all the pads and we watch in anticipation until it pinpoints Wilmington and says, Wilmington's where it's going to land. And Jim Cantori comes and everybody starts scurrying about. They run to the local grocery store. They buy up all the bread and all the milk to make whatever you make with just bread and milk. I'm not sure yet. (laughs) But they go and they get it and they're scurrying about, boarding up all the windows and all the, the things that they do in anticipation of when it comes. 
You see, for us as humans, we live our lives as we think about events that are going to be coming. We live our lives in anticipation, but we know that anticipation moves us towards preparation. We're always going to do something in preparation for an event that we are looking forward to. Today, we're ending our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, and as we've looked across this book, we've, we've had opportunities to learn lots of interesting things. And, and wherever you fall as it relates to the end times, there is one unshakable truth that we have come to understand. And that is this, Jesus is coming back. Amen. Wherever we fall on the, on the spectrum of end times belief, that is an unshakable reality. And for us, the question becomes, what do we do? How do we live? How do we prepare until he comes? What do we do with our lives? How do we prepare our lives until he comes? Today, we're going to actually end our study of the book of Revelation, not in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to be studying Matthew chapter 24. So if you want to open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, uh, we will answer this question and think about it. Do we, do we wait on Jesus in dread like the child who's waiting for his father to come home to dole out discipline? Do we wait for Jesus in a scurried, uh, hurried anticipation like we would as it relates to a hurricane? Or do we look forward to him with joyful anticipation as someone looks forward to Christmas Day? We're going to look at that in Matthew chapter 24. Um, but before we do that, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we have the opportunity to open your word, that you've given it to us as a gift to us. We pray that as we study it today, you would reveal what you would have us to know so that we could live lives that honor you. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 24 opens in kind of a unique way. It opens with this scene in Matthew chapter 24, verse one. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So we have to ask this question. Was this Jesus's first time in Jerusalem? Was was Jesus kind of like my wife Ashley and I were in 2019 when we went to New York City? Went to New York City, we got out and we started looking around and there were buildings as far as the eye could see. They were huge buildings, buildings that we didn't know what they were and they all looked similar. So what we did was we decided to go on a tour. So we got on one of these tour buses and they're driving us around and, and the conductor, the tour guide says, on your right-hand side, there's the stock market. You look over there, that's the stock market. If you look to your left, You'll see Chinatown. Now, you don't go there at a certain point of the day or the point of the evening. Don't eat food with a grade below this. And all these things where he is telling us what to do and what to not do. So is this what Jesus is? Are the disciples really giving Jesus a tour of Jerusalem? Well, no, uh, that's not the case, actually. Um, and if you are new to studying the Bible, just kind of as a, a reminder for us, if you're new to studying the Bible, or really, if you're old to studying the Bible, um, there is an important thing that we need to remember as we study any passage of Scripture. And that's this. We have to understand it in its context. We have to understand the surrounding verses so that we can know uh, what that particular verse is telling us. And then this is the case for this verse as well. We see just a few verses earlier, if you had to move back in, uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus has just said, see, your house is left to you desolate. 
He's just said this to the Pharisees. And these, and these words signify to the disciples that this place, this temple that they had become so accustomed to, this temple that they love so much is no longer going to play a role in God's unfolding plan of redemption. And so whenever we get to verses, verse one, and the disciples are pointing out to Jesus, this temple, they're saying, but look, Jesus, look at this temple. Look at what God has done. Look at this amazing structure. You know, if, if I was a disciple, I would probably be hoping that Jesus would come to me and say, no, this is just symbolic. Uh, this is just kind of a, a metaphorical language. Maybe, maybe Jesus would say this, oh, guys, you know, me and the Pharisees, we got this banter going back and forth. And, you know, sometimes they say unkind things to me. And, and then sometimes I try to try to remind them of the realities. Now, this what I'm saying here, guys, is just I was just trying to one up the Pharisees. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about this language. But to their dismay, he elaborates more in verse two. But he answered them. You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Not one will be left, Jesus says. The temple you see before you, it's gonna be destroyed. The temple, the epicenter of Jerusalem, 1.5 million square feet of splendor, gone. Stacks of stones, 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 12 feet deep, some weighing nearly 200,000 pounds. Yes, I did not add too many zeros, 200,000 pounds covered on all sides with gold. Historians say that when the sun shone on this temple, the temple shone brighter than the sun. An amazing structure but not only an amazing structure for the Israelites, it is the very heart and soul of their religion. The very physical sign of God's presence with his people. How could this temple be destroyed? Anyone would have hear, heard this and deemed it impossible. And while the disciples wonder about this, as the disciples are questioning this in their minds and in their hearts, I want us to notice something. I want us to notice something that maybe we passed over in reading this initially, uh, something that I think that Matthew is trying to draw out in our minds and for our attention. It's in verse one again. Jesus left the temple and was going away. Now, for many of us, we might look and say, well, that's just what Jesus did. He went in the temple, he taught. He came out of the temple, he went back in the temple, he taught. But what is significant about this time? This is the last time that Jesus leaves the temple. This is the last time that the glory of God is ever in a physical temple. And he leaves just like we see in Ezekiel where the glory of God departs the temple. And the disciples missed it. They missed it because they were so focused on the buildings that they forgot that right in front of them, right in front of them was their only hope. They had so focused their attention on, attached their hope and security to a place that they missed the person where all these things, all these longings could be realized. Another way to say this is this. They loved the place of his presence rather than his presence in the place. 
And friends, this is so important for us. And in, in, in this time, we see Jesus saying, the thing that you think is indestructible is going to be destroyed. The things of this world are passing away. The things that we think, the things that you think are immovable, things that we build our lives on, things that we find our satisfaction in, they are all passing away. And so as we observe these first two verses, I believe that there's an undergirding principle, an undergirding foundational answer to the question, what do we do until he comes? And the answer to that question is this, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. This is the underlying and undergirding principle for what we do until he comes. And why is this? Because fixing our eyes on Jesus is the key to ongoing preparation for his return. Casting our gaze and putting our attention and our focus on him is the foundational truth as we prepare for his return. Now, as we return our attention to the remaining verses, we see why this is so important. Notice what Jesus continues to see in this passage. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples' follow-up questions clue us into a few things about them. They believe that the destruction of the temple that Jesus just prophesied about and the, the end of the whole universe, the whole world is the same event. And if we were to take time to study throughout the book of Matthew or, or Matthew chapter 24 in particular, we would find that Jesus addresses this question uh, in, in their lives in such a way that helps them to see that the destruction of the temple and the end of the earth aren't the same thing, but one is a picture of the other. One is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen. One is a, an, an illustration of what is going to be happening at the end of time. And so we notice, just like we've noticed throughout the book of Revelation, that Jesus' goal in Matthew chapter 24 is not to answer our questions about every single detail of the end times, but rather to prepare us for whatever tomorrow holds, to prepare us for tomorrow, to prepare us for next week, to prepare us for next month and next year and, and 10 years from now, and even 10 billion years from now, to prepare us for that time. He wants us to see that as followers of Christ, we have something or rather someone that we can bank our hopes and our dreams upon. This is a reality for the first century disciples as they approached in a few decades from, their, from this hearing, the destruction of Jerusalem. And it is applicable for us today, 21st century disciples who approach the end of the world as we know it. See, he calls us to fix our eyes on him as the key to preparing for his return. Because in our lives, there are so many opportunities for distraction. There are so many ways in which our attention can be drawn away from him. And he gives us these four reasons why. First, we fix our eyes on Jesus so that we are not fooled. We fix our eyes on Jesus so that we are not fooled. Notice what Jesus says. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. See, in every area of history, the people of God face deception. 
There are going to be those who claim to be the Christ, who claim to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior. We see this in the book of Acts, just a few years after this is written. A man named uh, Theudas and another one named um, Judas the Galilean in, in Acts chapter five, or in our own day, in the early 90s, there was a man named David Koresh. Many of you are familiar with him and the Branch Davidians uh, who had a compound in Waco, Texas. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be uh, the offspring of David who had come to save people. Jesus is reminding us that there will be in every generation somebody that claims to be the Messiah, somebody that claims to be the Savior. And Jesus is reminding his disciples, don't get fooled by the messianic imposters. Don't believe them whenever they say that they are the Messiah. Now in this room today, we probably say, well, I would never fall for that. I would never fall for somebody that said that they were Jesus. There's a subtler way in this happen, the way this happens. So whenever people seek to redefine Jesus, whenever we see misrepresentations of his nature and his character, maybe it's not outright deceptions, maybe it's not somebody claiming to be Jesus, but it's someone who is seeking to change who he is and to teach people that he is not what the Bible says that he is. You know, our culture is okay with a Jesus who is compassionate, who is loving, who allows us to do what we want to do but our culture is not comfortable with a Jesus who says that he is king. A Jesus who demands and puts demands on our life as it means following him in this world. And as we near the end of the age, the number of false messiahs will increase. As the number of deceivers grow, so will the number of vulnerable people who will attach themselves to whatever they think is going to be, become salvific for them. They're gonna look for answers and these false messiahs will have plenty of false gospels to share with those who would come and listen and who would receive their message, seeks to deliver them from their problems and their troubles, but we are called to fix our eyes on the Jesus of the Bible so we are not fooled by their deceptions. So the way that I put this down as a reminder for us is this, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we get to see his character. We get to see his character. We come to see that he isn't simply a good moral teacher. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We come to see that he doesn't approve of our sin. No, he dies so that we can be free from it. He doesn't come uh, to, uh, he helps us to see that he is trustworthy and truthful and every word of his proves true. This is vitally important for us as we think about the end of the age, as we think about his return, because his word is trustworthy. We can trust that whenever he says he is coming back in a particular way, that that is true. It is important for us as we think about the fact that he says, I will come back and it will be unmistakable. You will not be able to mistake my coming. I'm coming on the clouds of glory and the whole world will see me. It will not be something that's done in a field out in the middle of nowhere. It is something that the world will see. So if they call you to come find me in a field, no, I am not there. I am not him. I am coming on the clouds. No one will mistake the coming of King Jesus. So we are called to fix our eyes on him so we are not fooled. But the second thing we see is that we fix our eyes on Jesus so we aren't fearful. We fix our eyes on him so we are not fearful. Notice what he says in verse six. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. 
see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. As the disciples hear this, their lives are in a relative state of peace. The culture that they live in uh, has been peaceful for many, many years. And as they hear this, uh, Jesus is reminding them that in just a matter of decades, just a little bit longer in the future, the destruction of Jerusalem will happen. He is helping prepare them as that day approaches. We know from history that in a matter of decades, this prophecy will come to pass. Political turmoil will erupt and the Roman government will have four emperors in the span of just one year. That is political upheaval at its, uh, at its finest. Jesus reminds his disciples and by extension, he reminds us that wars and rumors of wars, international strife and conflict, famine, earthquakes are all part of what happens in a fallen world. And these things are not necessarily signals of the end. He wants them to be reminded not to be fearful in these times. We must be reminded that this, this passage is helping us to see that this world is not outside of Jesus's control. If you notice the words, these must take place. Jesus doesn't say these might take place. He doesn't say these could take place. He says they must take place. He wants us to help us see that he is sovereign over all things. That for us as believers, there is no reason for us to fear because our King Jesus is sovereign. I don't know about you, but in my life, whenever there are things that are unknown, whether it's a, a doctor's visit or a situation in life, whenever there's something that I don't know the outcome of, I can become fearful and anxious. I don't know about you, but that is something that happens. I can see it in my own heart and in my own life. Unknown times bring fear. But friends, here's the great thing about Jesus. He knows the end from the beginning. There's nothing that happens in this world that Jesus does not know. There's nothing that happens in your life that Jesus does not know. There's nothing that happens in your neighbor's life that Jesus does not know. There's not anything that happens in the billion of people around the world's life that Jesus does not know. And as we seek Jesus, we fix our eyes on him. We get to see his power. We get to see the power of King Jesus. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He created the universe out of nothing and he upholds that same universe by the word of his power. He works all things after the counsel of his will. He, he heals the sick. He, he casts out demons. He calms the winds and the waves. He brings the dead to life. There is nothing outside of his power. And he wants us to hear this believer. If you are in Christ, you are safe in the hands of the Savior. You are safe in his hands. In effect, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, trust in me, even when it seems that everything is out of control, I am in control. He says, don't be disturbed. Don't be frightened. Don't be discouraged. Don't be despairing. Don't be despondent when you see these tremendously unsettling events occur. Don't think for a moment that God didn't know what was happening. No, God is in control. 
Jesus is saying, don't be frightened. I know this is coming. God has planned it in advance and God will see you through it. Don't let your life go up and down based on the political landscape of our world. Don't let it go up and down based on the climate shifts in our world. Fix your eyes on me so you are not fearful. But there's a third reason we see this. We fix our eyes on Jesus so that we remain faithful. Notice what he says in verses nine and following. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. As Jesus continues, he's focused their attention on general sufferings, the world's failings, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes. And he moves to suffering that is intensely personal, that is intensely personal. We see this in the history of the church. We see over and over again, persecution of those who embrace the gospel is always present. Persecution is a reality for those who pursue Jesus. And in many ways for the disciples, this would be a foreign concept. They've not experienced persecution to the same level that they will in just a few short years. Once Jesus dies on the cross, is raised from the dead and ascends to heaven, and the gospel begins to permeate the society, persecution will erupt. People will be killed for their faith. And here Jesus is reminding them that there are multiple ways in which this persecution will come. It will come from the outside, where people outside the church will seek to put you to death. They will seek to try you and to kill you for your faith. But it will also be from inside the church. People in the church will betray you. People in the faith will abandon you. But not only that, he moves to the most personal place of all. You'll have persecution as your own heart pulls you away from the things of God. Your own heart will be something that seeks to draw you away from God and his word. And because you face these persecutions, you're going to be tempted to turn from Christ and to trust in yourselves. And guys, here we sit, 2021, and these realities are expressed all over the world. We've seen it in the book of Acts. We see it in the epistles. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see it in church history. We are given a glimpse over and over of this, even in our own lives. The first 200 days of 2021 saw 3,500 Christians killed in Nigeria alone. 3,500 in the first 200 days of 2021. Leaders in the life of the churches that we see around the world who we once celebrated for their faithfulness have fallen to scandal whether it's been moral integrity, maybe it's been theological error, some have abandoned the faith altogether. Maybe here for you today, you'd say, no, those aren't me, but you feel it in your own heart. The things that you once would not even consider, you begin to 
began to embrace a little bit. The things that you said I would never, ever, ever think to do are becoming more alluring to you. Your heart is maybe growing a little bit cold to the Lord. You've begun to embrace things, ignore things, or approve of things that you know don't honor the Lord. And the question for us is what, what motivation is there to endure persecution? What, what motivation is there to endure abandonment, defection, and to endure the appeal of our own hearts? I believe the writer to Hebrews helps us to see this. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What motivation is there for us? It's this, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see his work for us. That motivates us to keep on going. It motivates us to not give up. He has died in our place as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve so that we can be counted as righteous in his sight. We have peace with God in such a way that no persecution levied against us by any outside agency could ever remove we have been adopted into an eternal family as sons and daughters so that even if our closest Christian friends betrayed us, we are still loved. We have been given the Holy Spirit of God by which we can put to death the deeds of the flesh, pursue righteousness and holiness. He has opened our eyes so that we can see that this light momentary affliction, whatever that may be, whether it's persecution or abandonment or temptation, are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. This is the salvation that Jesus has purchased for us believers. This is the salvation that is worth giving our all for and holding fast to Christ until the end. Fix our eyes on Jesus so that we don't give up, so that we don't run away when the world is against us, when Christian friends desert us, when our hearts want us to go after the things of this world. Don't give up. Preach to yourself the unimaginable glories that await for those who endure to the end. They are stored up for those who persevere faithfully to the end. In fact, Jesus is saying, I know what I'm calling you to is hard. I know I'm not calling you to an easy task, but look at the end. Look at the end, what I have prepared for you. There's a crown of glory set before you in the midst of this struggle. Everyone who endures will receive this crown. Let's fix our eyes on him so that we remain faithful to the end. And the last truth that we see in this is that we fix our eyes on Jesus to advance his fame. We advance his fame by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. This good news, this news of a, of a kingdom, this good news of a king, a message about a king who died in place of his enemies so that those who would believe would inherit an eternal kingdom will be entrusted to this group of disciples that Jesus is talking to. It will be given to them to share with the world. And Jesus is reminding them that my coming work on the cross and resurrection from the dead 
will spread as far as the curse of sin is found. It will spread wherever there is sin and death and hopelessness. My name, my kingdom, my work will be proclaimed as a testimony that real hope is available to all who would believe. To all who believe there will be hope. And as we think about this, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see his call on our lives. He calls us to share the good news of the gospel. We see this in 1 Peter chapter two. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus has called us, his people, to live lives that proclaim the gospel message that make his name great, to point our attention and the attention of our neighbors and our coworkers and the entire world to his perfect work. We proclaim the beauty of his kingdom, the character of this king and the price that he paid for us to see him for all eternity. Friends, this message that Jesus delivers is relevant to the disciples. It gives proof of his character. We see that in the days and years ahead of them, this came to pass. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And all the things that he encouraged them with, they had to put into action. During the lifetime of these believers, they saw all the things that he talks about. They saw wars and rumors of wars. They saw earthquakes, they saw persecution, they saw apostasy or defection from the gospel. They felt the own, their own temptation in their lives. But as we think about this, so has every other generation of Christian after them. What they experienced then is the same thing that we experience today. And so the message that Jesus gives to them is absolutely vital for us to embrace today. These things, these realities will continue until he comes. And so must our response to him. So today we live in this day, fixing our eyes on Jesus as we await that day. So we find ourselves finishing the race that Jesus has set before us for the fame of our great King. You may say, well, Jeff, where do I find these things? How do I, how do I find the ways not to be deceived or fooled? How do I find, how to, how to not be fearful? Well, he gives them to us in his word. His word is, is the place where Jesus invites us to know him to grow in our knowledge of who he is and his character, his power, his promises. We get to enjoy his presence. So I just wanna implore you, plead with you just for a moment to spend your time focusing your attention on the word of God and not the headline news, not embracing the front page of social media. Find yourself immersed in the word of God We'll be able to find ourselves faithful to the end. But not only that, get connected in Christian community. In Christian community, in small groups, we point each other forward 
to ask the questions. Are you fixing your eyes on something other than Jesus? Is there something that has your heart more holy than he does? Encourage each other to cast those things aside, to embrace the call that Jesus has put in our lives. So I would encourage you, if you're not part of a small group, this message is to encourage you to get to be plugged into one of those. Now, there may be some of you here today, maybe some of you are watching online and and over the past couple of months, the Lord's been tugging at your heart and drawing you and making you ask questions that you never otherwise would have asked. Maybe today the, the message for you is you've built your life on things that don't matter, that aren't going to endure for eternity. And Jesus is saying to you today, fix your eyes on me. Look to me for salvation. Look to me for hope in the midst of your hopelessness. Look to me for a way when you feel like there is no way. He may be calling you to salvation today, to trust him and surrender your lives to him as King Jesus. There may be some of you here today that are believers and and you're being tempted to, to fix your attention on tertiary issues in the world, things that are not eternal in nature and you're, and you're getting worked up and anxious and fearful about that, Jesus is saying to you, fix your eyes on me. Look to me today. You don't need to be fearful. I'm in control. I'm sovereign over this world. Today, as we've closed this series, our call is to fix our eyes on Jesus as we prepare for his return. And we wanted to do that in a in a tangible way, a way in which we could, we could fix our eyes on him corporately. We could proclaim his name and his death corporately and, and nothing outside of, uh, of taking the Lord's Supper together helps us even more. And so we've recognized that, that today we can, we can do both things. We can fix our eyes on him and remember his work and we can proclaim his death and his fame by participating together in the Lord's Supper. This is a tangible way for us as a faith family to put before our eyes, to listen with our ears and to dwell on with our hearts, the work that Christ has accomplished for us. And at the same time, looking forward to the day that he returns. So as we prepare our hearts this day to receive the Lord's Supper, would you pray with me? If you were encouraged by this message and you now have a desire to follow Christ or you just want to learn more about our church, I encourage you to go to scottshill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you were blessed by this message, I encourage you to share it with your friends and family on social media. God bless.